As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman pod on The Athletic, as well as David. Today, we're joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and one of our Liverpool writers, Simon Hughes. Coming up today, David will share exclusive detail on Jose Mourinho's contract at Tottenham. We'll look at the challenges facing Liverpool in what could be a season-defining week. And we'll also discuss Adam's incredible piece on Justin Fashionuit details, serious allegations about the former Norwich strikers' treatment in football, uh, by the church and by the media. The Champions League returns this week. There's no better time to sign up for all our unrivaled coverage at The Athletic. Until February the 25th, we're offering new subscribers a half-price annual subscription. That's less than £1 a week for an entire year. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Let's start with Jose Mourinho then, David. Uh, it's the lead story in your Monday column and it's been a challenging few weeks for him. Yeah, it has indeed. They're on a poor run domestically, but they do have a Europa League knockout campaign to look forward to. Also a Carabao Cup. Is it still the Carabao Cup? Carabao Cup final against Manchester City in Rumble, April. The Rumbelows. The, the Rumbelows, the, the, the yeah. uh, Worthington's Cup. So not all doom and gloom, but it does seem that whenever... Tottenham go on a sort of losing run or, or even just suffer one defeat that the future of Mourinho comes under scrutiny, largely because he's a manager who prides himself and his kind of USP is, is winning football, not on sort of attractive football. So when you're not winning and you don't have the attractive side of things, then a lot of the goodwill runs out. And we do hear people sort of suggesting that we know how this is going to end. And we've known it since Mourinho was appointed by Tottenham. But we explained in the column today that he signed a contract until the summer of 2023. And unlike some managerial contracts in football, this does not contain a break clause. Quite a few people from around the world asking me this morning, what is a break clause? It's simply um, a mechanism by which either side could part ways during the contract with a settlement to be reached. But that is not present in the Mourinho deal. It's not the sort of thing that uh, I think a manager of his calibre would have agreed to when coming into a club like Tottenham. And that means if it ever came to the stage where Daniel Levy Tottenham decided to go in a different direction and ultimately to sack Mourinho, 
then he would be entitled to a significant payout. We don't know what that payout would be because within the terms of the contract, it might be, I don't know, a certain number of weeks pay, a certain number of months pay, uh, payment until the end of the season, payment for the entirety of his remaining contract. But he's one of the highest paid managers in world football. And therefore, there will be some Spurs fans who would like a change, don't want Mourinho there, who will be looking at our story today and thinking that presents a significant problem because uh, there is a feeling in football, uh, many I speak to, that Mourinho is too expensive for Tottenham to sack, even if they wanted to. But Simon, it's not just... I mean, David says, you know, a few defeats and and the rumours start, but I would argue a little bit, it's more than just the defeats, it's everything else that happens around Mourinho. And there tends to be a pattern with him at the various clubs that he has managed. Actually, you wrote about that for, for The Independent two years ago. Yeah, I think he's slightly fortunate, actually, at the moment, that there's there's no crowds inside football stadiums um, because that tends to be the way owners, directors, directors of football react. They're the first thing that they react to when, at the time, you know, times t- turn against the manager. You know, at the moment, it's... It's a lot of criticism on, on, online, um, but I think all managers are getting criticised online at the moment because that's the only way people can express themselves. So it's difficult to cut through all that. But I, I do feel that he wasn't a popular choice when he went to Tottenham. Quite a lot of Tottenham fans weren't keen on him in the first place. And I think at this moment in time, you know, the, the, the stadium is full and Tottenham were, were losing home games. I, I think, you know, there'd be even a, a lot, lot more pressure on them. Um, I mean, I, I don't detect at the moment behind the scenes, there's that sort of unravelling like there was at Manchester United when he left there, um, which in some ways gives him less, less excuses. I, th- I think Tottenham really is a club that's that's set up just waiting to be successful. You've got some great players, great team, great youth system, great grounds, great training grounds. Everything is in place. It's just a case of getting the right combination between the players. I just I just watch Tottenham and for me, it, it doesn't seem like the players are comfortable with, with the style of football that they're being asked to play at the moment. If they finish outside the Champions League places for a second season running, I know they were mitigating circumstances last season. Tottenham's season last season was... It was pretty similar to Liverpool's season this season with all the injuries that they had to key players. So y- you can rationalise that. But I think to be going into a brand new stadium with the pressures of COVID and not being in the Champions League again for a second season, you know, the, 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 there's there's going to be some some tough decisions to be made. But I also think, as you said, alluded to there, David, that um, his, his wages and a, the set, some sort of settlement that, that, that would have to be made might, might go against that happening quickly. Um, Adam, uh, the producer of this show has been going through everybody's old tweets. I don't know how worrying this is for everybody concerned on this podcast. So here's yours from uh, here's yours from November 2019. Uh, Tottenham are a club with a modest budget, a chairman who has strong opinions, a long term plan, and a lot of players agitating over their future. Everyone is a red flag when set against the name. Jose Mourinho. They would be absolutely fascinating to see how Mourinho adapts to that and whether he can change. I can't believe how well that's aged um, <laughs> over time. I watched them on Saturday. I thought they were. I thought they were really poor on Saturday. It was one of those games where you, you're watching a team and you don't believe from the almost from the first or second minute of the game that they're going to do anything. That's not how it should be at Tottenham, um, as, as as Simon says, in terms of the way that they're set up now, in terms of 
infrastructure and the budget they have. I think they did back Mourinho in the summer. Whether they were necessarily the players that he personally would have chosen in all circumstances is a different question. But I think, you know, I don't think there were many people coming out of the summer transfer window thinking, uh, Mourinho's not really got what he's what, what he wanted here in terms of performance levels and when you know sporting directors and chairmen now they look so much at trends don't they in terms of the trend of performances I think Watford were probably the the, the first ones a few years ago to start doing this when we would look at sackings and say why, why have they sacked him mm. and you'd say well they've looked at this trend over six to eight months and they can see that this is the way it's going and I think when you know the patterns now of a Jose Mourinho team and it's like Spurs have been turbocharged through the, the different phases of Mourinho inside one season. So he started off having that pretty solid defence and really good performances, authoritative performances, efficient attacking, good defensively, good results against um, you know Arsenal at home, that 2-0, it felt like a really typical Mourinho team. But now we're at the other end of it where we're like, well, they've stopped defending well, so what is there? One thing I think we should point out is that there's no suggestion that Mourinho's position is under threat. Uh, we In the column, we were just explaining one situation within his contract. I'd kind of like to ask both of you, in a way, two things. The, the playing side of things, it seems that Mourinho always seems to find his allies and his enemies within a playing squad. And I don't know how healthy that is. On this occasion, the, the sort of enemies, so to speak, seem to be uh, a Deli Alley, a Harry Winks, maybe a couple of others. Whereas on the flip side, you've got Harry Kane, Hoiberg, um, who are really close to him. Um, and then also on the managerial side and Tottenham, they've tried Pochettino, went very well without trophies. They've tried the big famous name in Mourinho. It's going okay to an extent, depending on how, how the season ends. We don't know about trophies yet. If it doesn't work, where on earth does Daniel Levy look for this? And Mourinho has had a history of spending quite heavily at the clubs he's been at. Well, we're in a pandemic and Tottenham have taken out a massive Bank of England loan. Daniel Levy, we're always told, is, is not inclined to spend heavily. So when we look at that squad and areas in need of rejuvenation, and goodness me, at some point they're going to have to consider life post Harry Kane, it all seems to be a picture that doesn't lead to a future with Mourinho, but I don't know if that's just my observation. Yeah, well, I mean, first things first, I, mean, I wrote an article today about um, Julian Nagelsmann, and I know uh, I was told that, that he's very, very much respected at Tottenham, so that that could be a potential route out. It would make sense on a, on a number of levels. Uh, Nagelsmann so far has taken charge of clubs where it's it's more sort of project ladder. I hate that term personally, but um, but he took over <laughs> at Hoffenheim where it, it was sort of a club again, great infrastructure, a limited amount of history, virtually no history. I'm not saying Tottenham have got no history because they obviously do, um, but but like sort of an ambition, but but not the sort of the pressure to go and win trophies. And then obviously Leipzig was it was a step up from that. So for what Tottenham needs and for what Tottenham potentially could do with the players that they've got and everything that's there. He would make sense on a number of levels, I, I would say. To answer the question about Mourinho, I do I do find this fascinating, really, you know, this sort of divide and conquer sort of strategy that he seems to have had at every club. It seemed to really crank up at Real Madrid. I think Real Madrid changed him in lots of different ways and 
suddenly found that, you know, there's certain battles that he couldn't win. He'd won a lot of battles, you know, pretty much for the previous decade. Um, and since then, you know, as Adam alluded to, it feels that within sort of six to 12 months, he's he's picking fights with people. And I do, I do wonder to what extent that, that sort of management is is a little bit dated because players now, uh, I think players now more so sort of, I don't, I think they, they do sort of want the arm around the shoulder a bit more and to be reassured, you know, the, the reassurance that they're valued, particularly with the way the world is at the moment, you know, speak to players sometimes and I know sort of the public sort of perception of players is that, that they all love themselves and, you know, very confident, you know, with all the social media postings, but the amount of abuse that they get and stuff like that, I, I think that the players want to feel like they've got the managers back in because, you know, they don't, they don't get much of that, you know, from, from the day-to-day lives and, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we've seen people like, you know, Jurgen Klopp being successful. Guardiola never digs any players out. He always seems like he's got them on on side, even though they might feel oppositely inwardly that there's a way of handling that. Football's moved on so quickly when I I think about Mourinho and his his first bits of success in football at Porto and Chelsea. Very different game and landscape now to what it was then. The world's changed as well around it. And I don't want to be I don't want to say he's yesterday's man, but... I, I just sort of feel that, you know, the, the, this sort of battleground that, that, that he, he seems to create, I, th- I think clubs don't like it as well. I think I think chairman and, and, and owners don't like it to see that the club is in crisis. One thing on the on the treatment of, of players, Adam, I had, a, I had an ex-pro say to me over the weekend that they wished they had put money on the fact that he would bring both Gareth Bale and Deli Alley on at Manchester City when the game had already gone. Because if if ever there was a Jose Mourinho thing to do, they said to me, that is exactly the kind of thing that he would do with two players who have been born the brunt of some negative comments, some criticism from him. Right, here you go. We're 2-0 down or whatever they were against Manchester City. Go and do something. I heard exactly the same thing and, and it wouldn't have been from the same person. So... Blimey, it's it's, uh, it's it's something people are talking about. <laughs> when I was watching that, I was thinking, well, you know, in tomorrow's papers, there's going to be a there might be a picture of Tottenham walking off the pitch, and Deli Ali and Gareth Bale are going to be in that picture. And I suppose it, in some ways, it tars them with what was probably the one of the worst performances of Mourinho's period at the club. I think it was the worst result. I, I do think he's almost benefited from Tottenham having a lesser profile in some ways than a Manchester United or a Liverpool or an Arsenal over this year in the sense that, you know, if you can imagine, you know, somewhat the players that would have been the equivalents of Delhi, Gareth Bale, Harry Winks to Arsenal fans or Manchester United fans or Liverpool fans, and all of a sudden they'd been essentially, I know Winks has come back in a bit over the past few weeks, but they certainly seem to have suffered from a, la- a lack of, faith I would say from the manager over the past year and I just think they've probably not had that same sort of microscopic glare that you get at other top six clubs but I do think the treat I think the treat the treatment's been weird and strange particularly when you consider that with Deli Ali when he first went in Deli was the main man for six weeks he was scoring goals he was he was playing football that we hadn't really seen from him for a couple of years and then it's just flipped completely the other way I think the more worrying thing is beyond those three players you're now struggling to find Tottenham players who you can say they're really playing well at the moment as individuals. And it reminds me a lot of his period towards the end at Manchester United, when as supporters, you find yourself looking at these players who you previously quite liked and thinking, oh my God, they're uncoachable. 
how nobody could get anything more out of. I remember thinking it about Luke Shaw at the time. Oh, people can criticise Mourinho, but no one else would get anything more out of him. Marcus Rashford, the same. And there was that instant, I remember at Old Trafford, when Marcus Rashford missed a chance and, and Mourinho sort of turned to the stand very dramatically saying, it was almost like saying, what more can I do with him? I might be the manager, but what more can I do with this guy? And it felt a bit like that during Tottenham's game against Liverpool a couple of weeks ago. They conceded a goal um, when Mane scored in that right back position. And I think Aurier must have gone off at half time. They had Roden and Doherty, I think, in that right central position. And they got they were caught out for the goal. And Mourinho turned to his staff and it was almost like he was rolling his eyes saying, what more can I do? And, and as fans, you almost get into this mindset of, oh my God, he's right. They're rubbish. <laughs> what more can he do? But it's his job. This is his job to coach these players, to improve these players, to give them confidence. And there's too many of them at the moment that you're looking at and thinking they're not good enough as footballers. That's not right. These players are better than that. And he has to find a way of getting that out of them. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Ornstein and Chapman Podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Let's broaden it out a little bit. You you spoke, Simon, about writing an article on Nagelsmann. Obviously, Liverpool and, and Leipzig meet in the Champions League this week. He is going to be much sought after by a variety of European clubs, isn't he? Definitely. His career ascension has been quite dramatic, really, when you think how still how young he is. I mean, he's younger than me, which is always a barometer of how I feel about people. Um, <laughs> even with jealousy. I remember... Back in 2017, when he was Hoffenheim's manager, and obviously they came to Anfield and, and played really, really well, really, really, some really attacking football. It reminded me a little bit of when Liverpool had Brendan Rodgers, some of his European performances, where he, I remember they went to Zenit St. Petersburg and played some really exciting stuff, but ended up getting beaten quite comprehensively. And it, it reminded me a lot of that. I think. I think he's sort of become, he's obviously learned quite quickly, Nagelsmann, because uh, he's, he's since had some excellent results in, in Europe with Leipzig. There was an, a, sort of a feeling a couple of years ago that he might be the one that would come and take over even when Klopp leaves Liverpool. And this is sort of what the the article is about, really. And it, I, I, I think the chances of that happening have probably decreased in the last year for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, it, he, he was once represented by... Jürgen Klopp's agent, Mark Kosicke, who that they separated last summer just after Leipzig got knocked out of the Champions League semi-final. And he went to another group, you know, got some some really high-profile clients, one of whom is, is Tony Cruz. And Nagelsmann's spoken before about uh, Real Madrid approaching him. He decided not to go at that time, I think quite sensibly. Um, and, you know, he's as I said before, he's sort of taken his, his time with his career, I think, there's a few managers in the past who've sort of been in too much of a rush to get to the top. And I made the comparison at the end of the piece with um, Andre Villas-Boas, who was the same age as Nagelsmann was when he he took over at Chelsea, you know, and, and had actually managed high-level football for a, a less less amount of time. He'd only been in charge of Porto for a season and I think Academica in, in, in Portugal for a season, two years, and he's got the Chelsea job. A year later, 
he's out of the Chelsea job and goes to Tottenham and, and then fails there as well. So I think there's a, a little bit of a warning for, you know, somebody like Nagelsmann who, who's made some, you know, some big noises for good reason is, and, and is rated very highly. Um, but, you know, probably has to think very carefully about the next step because there's two things here that, that I think... Um, I do. I was. It was put to me by by a couple of people that that he, he might not really have that sort of public touch that Jurgen Klopp has. You know, in terms of he's, he's managed very sort of clinically run, not particularly passionate fan base clubs. You know, Leipzig, as I said, sort of sprung out of nowhere the last ten years. Have very little history. Same at Hoffenheim. So to go and manage at one of the big established clubs like Liverpool, it will be a major jump. Once again, Leipzig are, are quite a distance behind Bayern Munich in the in the Bundesliga table, as they were last season. You know, I don't think he, although they've managed to make progress in Europe and do well in the Champions League, they haven't been able to close that gap in the Bundesliga. And then not only that, they've just lost Upa Meccano to Bayern Munich. So that's going to weaken them and strengthen Bayern Munich for next season. So there is a feeling that that he might he might move on at the end of the end of the season. I know Chelsea inquired about his availability when when uh, they were thinking about getting rid of Frank Lampard. So he's very highly rated, but I, I I do get the impression speaking to people around him that he's very conscious that he needs to make the right decision and not necessarily the most take the most glamorous job that is thrown in front of him next. It'd be really interesting to see where he goes. Simon mentions Chelsea there. The feeling that they got was that they would have to wait until the summer if they wanted to appoint him because he's still in the Champions League. And arguably more importantly, he's under contract until 2023 with no release clause. Um, And RB Leipzig are not in any financial need to do business with another club for his services. And he's said to be relatively happy. I was really quite surprised when I made inquiries about that as well. And um, I was told that even a club of Chelsea stature, if they really wanted him, and I know they had some reservations about him a, a couple of years ago, whether they've changed or not, I don't know. But they would have had a real battle on their hands to have got him out to the extent that people in Germany were telling me that it's unlikely they would be able to. What sort of problem does that present to potential clubs looking to get him from this summer onwards? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you'd have to be a very determined club armed with a lot of money to make sure it happens. But the harsh reality of football is if a manager becomes or a player becomes unsettled or or concerned that, you know, there is a, there is a potential that he stays at Leipzig and they don't close the gap on Bayern Munich. And then suddenly people are saying, well, actually, Jürgen Klopp was able to do that. Why are you not able to do it? You're stocked with more money. So he might might make the decision that, well, actually it might be a good time to move because, you know, again, it's difficult to sort of make the comparisons because, you know, the context around clubs have changed, you know, changed between Bayern Munich now and Bayern Munich 10 years ago when when Klopp was able to do that. Um, If he were to deliver, you know, the, the title at some point for Leipzig, I'd imagine straight away any major club in Europe that was um, that was in need of a, a manager that summer would be making calls about that. I mean, at the end of the day, and I know Leipzig don't need the money, but I think if a, there's a there is a resolve in a player or a manager to move on, one way or another, it tends to happen in football, doesn't it? Um, he's been there. This is the end of his second season, so he's only been there two seasons. Uh, we will see, but I, I suspect next summer. And certainly the summer after, people are going to be talking about him again. Just as you uh, as you mentioned, Jurgen Klopp there, and maybe at one time there was a succession plan in place as regards Nagelsmann. Just overall, 
what Klopp is dealing with at the moment. Like I mean, like a lot of managers and a lot of people in very difficult times. But it, but it is it, it is very tough for him at the moment. Oh yeah, footballers. We we do forget that they are or football people, football managers, footballers, still humans. You know, at this moment in time, every footballer in the Premier League who has come to England to play, you know, football from another country is facing the reality that they might not be able to see their family for a long period of time, particularly if you're South American. Now, imagine being a football manager whose parents has been in a nursing home for, for quite a long period of time and is not able to, A, go to the funeral, B, be surrounded by people that, that he cares about. I can't imagine how difficult that must be, particularly Jürgen Klopp. He's a very thoughtful person. The significance of the death of a loved one won't be something that he'd just be able to put down to, oh, well, it's a, my parents, it's, it's expected to happen. He will be thinking about it. So, yeah, I think it, it's a very difficult time for him. You know, Liverpool's form on the pitch has been very poor as well. So he's, he's dealing with a lot at the moment. If you look at Klopp over the last sort of five years at Liverpool, and even when he was at Dortmund, one of the big things that he's always sort of tried to do in the middle of a season has been a break. You know, we've, we've spoken about it over the last couple of months, you know, his, his frustrations with, with the, the relentlessness of the Premier League and the fixture calendar. Uh, and this ties into it. I think this year, there's just no escape from A, the football, B, the fact that he's dealing with a personal bereavement. He's not able to take a step back and think, just get his head together. Can he not go to the funeral and spend time with his family because of the rules and regulations or because the football is so incessant because they're two, they're two quite big things. What feels to me like quite a big thing over the last few months that we don't allow people involved in football to take a break for personal circumstances. And I always come back to a story that I had with Wickham manager Gareth Ainsworth, who after a back operation on the Friday was trying to manage Wickham from his hospital bed in a game on the Saturday. And all of us within the game, I don't care whether that's, and and there's a responsibility for the media to how they report this, to fans to be more understanding that sometimes your personal life means you need to take time off from things to deal with bereavements or, or recuperate from operations or whatever it may be. And it simply doesn't seem to be allowed in football. I totally agree. I, mean, I wrote a piece about it last week and straight away, some of the responses were, you know, quite unkind. You know, a few, even a few Liverpool fans saying, well, Rafa Benitez did it. There were countless other people who suffered a bereavement and, and, and not taking time off. But let's not forget, this is an extraordinary time in, in history. Everybody's different. Yeah. I can remember being at Stoke exactly, yeah. on a Monday night and Tony Pulis's mum, he was Stoke manager at the time, Tony Pulis's mum had died that day. And so he wasn't there to manage. But at half time, as I'm as I'm handing to the commentators for the second half, Tony Pulis walks down the walks down the touchline. Now, I'm not. I know Tony really well, and I know Tony is a huge family man. Tony will have done what is right for him and his family, and and that's what he felt felt was right. But but the next Stoke manager might have gone through the same thing and decided that wouldn't have been right for his family. Everybody's different. Exactly. Every, everybody applies their sort of their own personal experience and says, "Well, I reacted like that, so you should react like that." Sometimes I just think that's that's not a very sensible mm. way of going about it. I mean, I, I know a football manager who lost a parent uh, just before Christmas due to COVID. He found out. He found out just before his team were about to kick off. His son plays in the team. He went against his instinct. He said, "I have to stay and manage." 
this game because if I decide to go, A, my son will be then wondering what is going on, why has he left? It'll either disrupt his performance or he'll have to come with me. So I had to make an impossible decision, you know, a really, really, really hard decision. And, he, you know, he cracked on with the game, hasn't been able to take a break, you know, since then, really. When I speak to him, I can sense that not having, not being able to take that break has, has, has been hard on him. You know, it's been really, really hard. Now, this is a manager who's not, a, you know, at managing at a high level of football where the focus and the expectation is, is on him. But... You know, I don't know how you would deal with that, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. current circumstances, not being able to, as, as I said in the piece I wrote about Klopp, I mean, again, I was applying my personal experience to to his situation, but that's just my experience. And I, all I know is that when I sort of went through a similar experience, being able to draw some sort of line, you know, not that that really ever happens like that because you always think about it, but but being able to draw some sort of line was quite helpful and allowed me to sort of get myself together again, you know, and I, I just don't think that opportunity is going to be there for Jürgen Klopp. Now, uh, yes, I know he's a football manager. He's paid very, very well. You know, he's famous, but he's a human being who is going to be affected by this, this situation like anybody else. I'm not saying he deserves more sympathy than anyone else, but I just think that people should should be a bit more understanding. Footballers and football people and high-profile people have families and and uh, it would be understandable if he is if he wasn't able to to do the job that uh, to the mm. to the expectations that everybody has. I, I just think it's really, really hard on him at the moment. As it is hard on, on everybody, I, I must keep saying that. And just because, I mean, a few people, I think it doesn't help as well that the, the, the sort of the conversation about it is absolutely on social media. That's the way people communicate now. So the battle lines are drawn. There's not much room for like sort of stepping back and just thinking, you know what? I have a lot of sympathy with it. With not that he's asking for sympathy, just an understanding. I think that's the best way yeah. of saying it, really. A lot of the commentary around Klopp was that he had suffered this in, in midweek. He hadn't. It was towards the end of January. This has been ongoing for a period of time and, and he missed the funeral. I think the logistics mean that he couldn't even take a private jet to travel outside of the UK, even if he wanted to take a break. And I'm sure Liverpool would have been completely understanding of that. So it, it was literally impossible, which many of the responses to Simon's pieces piece was like, well, Pep Guardiola also lost his mother. Terrible uh, during the pandemic. But that was during the summer before the new season started and he was able to spend um, time with his family, thankfully. Um, and I've got enormous respect for both men. It's no competition, um, it, it, but these are unique circumstances in their own right. And he's not been able to leave Merseyside to my knowledge. So let's just show a bit of respect out there. And, and Simon's absolutely right that social media has in certain situations and in elements of this story has been a cesspit. I think the first thing to say is we don't, I don't know what, you know, I'm sure if Jurgen Klopp would have gone to Liverpool and said, can I take some time that the club probably would have afforded him that. The other thing is though, that, that there is a culture within sports. And I think actually within, I would also say within British society that the pandemic's shown up a little bit, which is if you aren't, if you don't feel right, you should still go 100% at your job. And I don't understand why this is the case. And with regards to football and, and sport, there is this idea of we have to play through an injury. We have to play through whatever is going on in our life. The, the number one thing is what happens on a Saturday at 
3 p.m. or nowadays 5.30 p.m. on a Monday. This culture, it's, it's, I think it's dangerous. I think it's toxic. I think it's, I think it's highly unpleasant. It encourages people to, to not address their problems when, when, when they come up. And there will be people who deal with things all, all you know, completely differently. There will be people who benefit from continuing and that should be respected. But there's also people who need to know that they have the room and the space to say to people, I need to step away for a little bit. I did a piece last year where I spoke to five different footballers who had all gone through grief during their playing career or managerial career. And uh, I remember speaking to David Mailer, the Ireland player, and he was, I think he was at Sunderland and Hull at the time. And he was talking about the, the night he was in his bedroom with the Republic of Ireland and his wife, uh, Callie, had suffered a miscarriage. And Martin O'Neill was the Ireland manager at the time. And he said, go home, go home, forget it, just go. Roy Keane, assistant manager, said, go and that night, I think he played 90 minutes for his country. And, and on the one hand, that is the most extraordinary courage and bravery and resilience. And the, on the other hand, you know, I think he, you know, he would say it's, it was also just, I needed, the distra- I needed the distraction, the deflection. But I also question whether football has a culture, even though his manager was saying, go, go, whether you're just brought up at the back of your mind to think, no, no, I have to go. I have to be playing. I have to, whatever I do, I have to carry on here. And it's, and it's, it's, it's something that football needs to do far more to address. And there was, I think there was, and this isn't an attack on Jose Mourinho, but there was a clip in the um, Spurs documentary last year where Son had a bit of a, had a, had a niggle and he was telling him, you know, oh, you've got to make sure you play through that. And I think there's a lot of this that goes on in football, you know, painkilling injections and, Grief, it's all part of the same perception of what it means to be masculine all the time. Um, and I don't think it's healthy. When Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was given compassionate time mm. off recently, this sort of rumour mill began about why he was really off. Well, the real reason was that he had um, a family situation to deal with and, and that brought added complications around quarantine and travel, etc. If you put yourself in their shoes some of the reluctance may be because of the reaction that comes when you do take time off as if he was hiding something and, and then rumours start. I had people sending me things saying, is this tr- really respect respected people? Is this true? Well, no, absolutely not. Just to touch on that, David, I mean, on, on Saturday night after Jürgen Klopp did his post-match interview, Leicester, I mean, I think the way he spoke was probably misrepresented a little bit. I think he had a hot cold and made it look like he was tearful. Uh, and people from that connecting with what had become a public matter earlier in the week, you know, text going around, he's resigning. I mean, I, I ended up having to put calls in on Saturday night just to double check that I wasn't going mad. I'd had a few drinks on Saturday night and nevertheless thought that I should, I should, I should put a few calls in and try and, just, you know, I don't want to wake up on Sunday morning and find out he's gone, which I, I didn't think was the case anyway. And, you know, I was reassured, no, he's definitely definitely not resigning. But it feeds into what you're saying. As soon as, like, sort of that becomes a public matter, he's under the strain of, of what's going on. And then and then obviously the team have a bad result and he, he doesn't look particularly enthusiastic afterwards. He's resigning, you know, just... 
you know, it's 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 become that that element of it is 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 as Adam said, it's, it's unhealthy. Did you have to try and sound sober when you put those calls in? <laughs> those, those calls are a nightmare when was, you've had a few, but now you have to try and sound sober and then yeah. make the extra effort, but then end up sounding probably more <laughs> more drunk than sober well, after after an. Uh, after another miserable Liverpool performance, I uh, yeah, there, there was a few gin and tonics, <laughs> d- double or treble gin and tonics, which is not always going to end up badly, isn't it? So, uh, is that what Alison was drinking as well? <laughs> <laughs> um, He's on the kind of gene here. <laughs> oh, memories of those. Blimey. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Ornstein and Chapman Podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Let's move on on the pod. This week would have been the former Norwich City striker, Justin Fashionew's 60th birthday, Britain's only high-profile, openly gay footballer. Adam, you've written an incredible piece on The Athletic about all aspects of Justin's life. It's really, really important, but all aspects of Justin's life, not just the the tragic way he took his own life. Yeah, and I've been really amazed, actually, and humbled by the reaction to it because I was quite nervous in terms of how people would receive it from different, I suppose, different aspects of life. I suppose to frame it, I'd almost, I'd grown up as you know, as a as a as a gay football fan, and Justin Fashionu's life had been almost just told to me as he was gay therefore he killed himself and it had almost just been internalized as this extra layer of gay tragedy that means my life when I grow up is going to be hard and that was just how I'd perceived it growing up and I know speaking to other people over the past few weeks I think others felt the same way what I learned during that is actually it it had suited a lot of people who had mistreated him during his life to frame his death that way to frame his death as he was so torn by his sexuality, by who he was, that therefore he ended up taking his own life. As it transpired, we, you know, we will never know why exactly he took his own life. But as the piece says, there were very serious allegations in the United States against him at the time about a sexual assault. And he was left feeling at the time that he stood no chance in court as a black gay man in the States. And my takeaway is that was probably the most likely reason at the time there are so many layers to to this person's life in terms of you know he was a a black child brought up by white foster parents having previously been in care he then becomes a one million pound footballer first one million pound black footballer signing for brian clough's nottingham forest that goes abysmally he becomes a one million pound flop he becomes 
he is then throughout this whole time dealing with realizing that he's gay, that he's different. And then when he comes out, there is just this tidal wave of, of mistreatment from members of his own family, from the church. You know, I've spoken to people who explained that he became a born again Christian shortly after realizing that, that he was gay. And, you know, his treatment by parts of the evangelical wing of Christianity extended to think to people basically telling him you shouldn't be gay that you might have attraction but this isn't who you are you have to control it you know i've spoken to friends who were with him in those bible classes who say that he was you know essentially he was he felt tormented by the way he was treated less by who he was and more by the way he was treated and there were suggestions that things such as cure therapy methods were suggested to him so you're talking really dark aspects of society there and then when he does come out, he encounters this huge rejection, first of all, from his brother, John Fashionu, who was a footballer at the time, but so much broader than that, you know, from the, from the national media, also from the black community media at the time, which, you know, you have to remember this was 30 years ago and attitudes were different, but the, 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 the real hostility that he encountered from the black community was a real element of this story that I wanted to tell through talking to black gay activist who campaigned for him at the time. The biggest thing I wanted to try and convey was, yes, he'd endured a lot through being who he was, but he'd also actually, after he came out, he encountered, I think for the first time, a community that actually accepted him in terms of the LGBT community. And this is, it's never really been told, um, I suppose, the confidence that he had about his own sexuality in terms of, you know, I mean, I spoke to Peter Tatchell, the human rights activist who talked about nights out that they had together at gay clubs. He made a BBC documentary with Michael Cashman, the actor and politician, challenging homophobia. This was in 1991. He went on BBC on a show called Open to Questions, which is almost like a question time style audience where he spoke about HIV stigma. He spoke about perceptions of masculinity. He spoke about why he felt it was wrong to label sexuality. I mean, it's completely radical, not only for a footballer in 1991, but for anyone in society to go on national TV at that time and talk that way. He posed for the front cover of Gay Times at a time where even people who were out as gay were telling people at Gay Times, we, we, we can't do this, we risk losing too much. So I really want to convey that there was this aspect of his, of his life that I think has been airbrushed and erased over time because it had suited people who had mistreated him in life to remember him a different way. And those people that mistreated him come from, I mean, I know you mentioned the church, but primarily those in football and the media. And what, what I find, and I, you know, I've, I've, I've done programmes on, on Justin Fashion you before as, as well and homophobia in football. But what is always astonishing here, Adam, and this is not in your lifetime, but I look at this is in this is in my life. You know, this is in the the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties. This isn't this isn't that long ago, and that is what I always find so worrying and sad about this story. Yeah, and you know, if you think you know, I think the PFA chairman is still the same person, um, <laughs> right? So you know, and yeah. and and there's a, I suppose there's a jokey point in that, but there's a serious point in that in that. So I imagine that so much of what happened in Justin's life and the circumstances of his death have defined football's approach to this issue because it's always presented as the cautionary tale, isn't it? You know, Justin Fashionu was gay. We all know what happened to him. Therefore, I can just imagine the amount of 
young gay people who would have been in football who had seen that story and thought, I'm not getting near that. I can't, I can't even touch this. And, and I think that, that was one of the things. I mean, in terms of football, I mean, I, mean, the, the, I know it's, you can say, yeah, it's 25, 30 years ago. A lot of these people still work in football. The treatment's repulsive, to be honest. And we can, you know, we can try and sugarcoat it, but you know, we're talking about a player who was regularly called a puff in training by his manager Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest. We're talking about a player who, whose teammates, you know, when he got in the bath at West Ham after games, they got out. We're talking about a player who regularly teammates would refuse to share a room with him because, yeah, let's use the word in the homophobic mind of. Of, fo- mm. of footballers in that period. A gay person obviously fancied them, obviously was going to be a sexual predator that was going to attack them in their sleep. That's how they viewed it. That's the only conclusion you can make of someone refusing to share a room with them. And then there was also this fear of, I suppose, being seen to be the person who's sleeping in the same room as Justin Fashionu, because that also, that makes me gay as well, if I'm in the same bedroom. There's, you know, there's, there's darkest, you know, he spoke on that BBC interview about the, the, the medical that he had to do at Torquay, where it was mandated that he had to have an HIV test as part of that. And he was told that it was the case for all the players at the time, but he was told that he was in a higher risk category because he probably had multiple partners. And he answered saying, well, I don't actually have multiple partners mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time, but that was the presumption. And I just, I can't imagine the, the loneliness that he must have felt at certain times. And there were times that he made jokes of it, you know, that where I think he'd play up to, being called all different names just because that's sometimes what you do, isn't it? You, you know, someone finds a weakness and you play up to that in order to, to feel involved. But the loneliness he must have felt, the taunting from the terraces, but not then when you set that against the confidence and the bravery that he showed, I just I find it extraordinary. And, you know, I'm not, you know, we're not trying to, I suppose, not trying to sanitize him because there were very serious allegations that were made against him before he died, there was also, you know, elements of his life that were utterly bewildering in terms of the way he acted. You know, there, were, there was a time where he uh, called up one of the national newspapers and said he had information about the death of a Tory MP and that he wanted to speak to police detectives. And it turned out it was all a load of rubbish and he ended up being sacked by his club hearts at the time for it. So, you know, a hugely complicated character, um, but it just seemed to me that he hadn't been remembered in in a way that 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 was suitable. Adam, thank you for such incredible work, and the way you've talked about it is just enlightening and powerful and important. A question for both of you: Firstly, when I retweeted your piece, is it encouraging that I didn't see a single? negative or derogatory comment in my notifications, which is a far better picture, I can assure you, than when I talk about a transfer or a sacking (laughs) or a football rumour or something like that, the tribal nature. That felt encouraging to me on a sort of mini scale. Um, And Simon, you tweeted that it was basically the most important piece that The Athletic had done since launching in the UK. And uh, I wanted to know your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, well, I think that because it's something that obviously uh, happened a long time ago and it's something the football still hasn't come to terms with and it brings it back to the forefront, uh, you know, and, and it's something that affects huge number of people across the world. So I, I thought it was very important and I, it, it was just something that Adam said at the beginning there about sort of Justin Fashion who essentially killed himself because he was gay. I mean, I, I, I remember 
I said before we, we came on air, I remember the, the day he died in 1998. So I would have been, I reckon, 13, 14 at that time. And we, we were playing, I was playing a seven-a-side football tournament. Sun was shining, uh, I think it was at the start of May, if, if I remember yeah. correctly. Am I right yeah. in saying that? Yeah, I haven't researched it. I just remember it. I just vividly remember it. And I remember at that time, sort of footballers, you know, footballers didn't die, you know, really. And that sounds a bit of a weird thing to say. Mm. Um, when when, mm. when the footballer died, you know, it, it, it was it was quite a, an unusual event. And I remember, obviously, jo- I'd grown up with John Fashion, who being the sort of one of the eminent footballers of the 1990s. You know, he's obviously had great success with Wimbledon. He was all over the TV with Gladiators. So I, I knew his story very well. So when I heard that Justin Fashion, who had died, I remember speaking to people at this football match, I best not say who they are necessarily. And that, that, that was the sort of, that was their take on it, you know, an adult take on why he died. He died, he killed himself because he was gay. And I I couldn't get my head around it, you know, as, as, as a young person at the time, I did question that. I was like, well, you know, is, is there a possibility that, you know, people have treated him badly and this is why it's happened, not because he's gay, basically. I, I always, I vividly remember that. And, and, you know, all these years later, it's like 20, 23 years later. Who am I to say that, you know, pe- people should should come out when, you know, because football demands it or because football uh, doesn't have a place for, you know, football hasn't had a gay footballer who, who's, who's live and, and, and professional and, and playing. That's not for me to say because everybody should be able to make their, their own decisions according to how comfortable they, they feel about, about any issue. But I, I still find it, it's, it's absolutely... Terrible indictments on society, first, that no footballer who, who's active feels comfortable enough to do that. And then obviously the game itself uh, just, just reminded me, reading the piece, that you know we've all got a long way to go before um, we can start patting ourselves on the back, saying you know how, how much progress we've made. We've got an awful long way to go, I think. And well, I agree. I, I was the same as you, David. I haven't tweeted that. No, no sense of animosity towards the piece. I've, I've only seen... I've only seen positivity around the piece, which which is encouraging. But that's not to say that there isn't, you know, that that, that doesn't happen. I mean, uh, I'm only seeing Twitter through the prism of of my Twitter feed. I mean, it's fascinating at the moment, all the discussion about abuse in, in football and that there isn't homophobic abuse, but that's because we don't exist. <laughs> we, yeah. we, are, we, we don't exist. We don't, we don't even mm. exist to the point where we can be abused, really, apart from... I suppose you know. I suppose that there is very much still the this tension between, I suppose, more international fan bases in terms of the perception of LGBT society that that you do see on, I suppose, club accounts in different parts of the world. But no, the, I mean, the reaction to it, yes, it was good, which was nice. But it, you you look at like what what is football doing really to make itself more more inclusive and to really get on the front foot? I mean, this is really not an attack on. John Walters at all, because it could have been anyone. He, over the weekend, made a pitch to be the PFA chairman. He put up a manifesto online and over the weekend, he did an interview in the Times. And in this manifesto, he talked about all different aspects of football that needed improving. There wasn't a mention anywhere of sexuality, of making a more inclusive culture for LGBT people. And and I don't, I, I really, I really don't mean that as a, as an attack on him. I mean it as there is almost just this, it often feels like people just aren't thinking about it. And it just makes me really sad because there's going to be a lot of people, there's, there's a lot of young 
people now who are increasingly confident in their sexuality who don't see sport as a place for them. That is a major problem. They don't see professional sport, elite sport, as being sufficiently welcoming and inclusive. And, you know, I spoke to a Premier League club a few months ago who were saying, yeah, we need to do a bit more in the academy. We need to stop, you know, we really need to get that sorted. In my head, I was thinking like, how haven't you sorted that yet? How isn't that a thing? How isn't, in all these tie-ups you have with schools, how isn't this front and centre of the work that you're doing so that people, so that players, when they're going through academies, they don't get to 21 and think, I need to come out to my teammates because they'll have been confident enough in their teenage years to be who they are and be who them, to be themselves. But it's not there yet. And I, and I do think to go back to that point originally about, about Justin Fashionu, I think so much of football's approach to this issue has been defined by what happened in his life. And to go to Simon's point about why people were set, why, you know, an adult would have said he killed himself because he was gay. Well, I'm I'm sorry to say it as, you know, as someone who works in the media, who's someone who worked for uh, the Daily Mail before I worked for The Athletic. The reason that people thought that was because of the way that he was framed in his life by the media and by society, by a religion that told him he couldn't be who he was, by the voice, the black newspaper that told him at the time he could be out, but if he was out, then he had to be ashamed of it, by a tabloid media that, you know, the mayor, I think the day after his death, they, they, they wrote in the intro, Justin Fashion, who killed himself in torment over his gay, over his homosexual lifestyle. That's what people wanted you to think. That's why we came to think it. It's not a secret. That's why it happened. Can I just clarify one thing you said in that answer, which, which I think is probably important for people listening to us, that when you talk about elite sport not being a welcoming place to, to come out in, we're talking elite male sport. Yeah, yeah of course. Actually, but, you know, elite female sport is a much more welcoming environment. I think, I think it's fair to point that out, isn't it? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, there was, I think only on Sunday evening, on Valentine's Day evening, um, the Chelsea Chelsea teammates, um, Pernil, Pernil Harder and mm. Ericsson, who are a couple, they opened up their DM, their direct messages on Twitter and said, anyone, you know, who is young and from the LGBT community who's struggling and who wants to talk to us for the next couple of hours, our direct messages are open come and talk to us, we're here to help you. I mean, the environment, it, it, it could not be more different. It, it could not be more different in terms of the openness, the, the inclusivity, the sense of belonging. It's extraordinary that that can be happening often on the same training ground, 150 yards away, that the same training ground can be home to such an inclusive environment. And on the other hand, an environment that has for too long been oppressive. We will leave it there. Adam's piece in full is on The Athletic and you can read it now and it is well worth doing so. Thank you, everybody. We will do uh, another one next week uh, and I'm back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.